Um, I'm, I'm the guy leading the group out to Broken Hill in a couple of weeks. And can I uh, just sort of say, please be generous to those guys fundraising outside. We have to um, raise a lot of money for this one. I took a group two years ago to Exmouth in Western Australia. And because it was an Anglo-Saxon church, they were able to feed us and house us. But because we're going to an Indigenous church on this occasion, they just can't. So we've got to organise... Um, our own accommodation in a caravan park. I've got to do all the catering of the food, organised transport, a minivan and that kind of stuff. So please be generous. Uh, it's going to a good cause. And of course, um, Neville Naden and his church over there, the, the plan is we're just the, the, I guess, the point guard of the relationship and there's going to be a lot of back and forth. It's going to be a long-term thing as we, uh, as we become friends with those guys. So please consider how you might be able to help. Well, Daniel 8, were you appalled by the vision? We'll try and crack it open. I don't know if uh, anyone reads the Sydney Morning Herald and you're, you're familiar with Peter Fitzsimons. He's a bit of a scallywag who writes an editorial in the sports section. And this week he commented on this monstrosity, a 46 metre high Christ the Redeemer shaped hot air balloon over Melbourne, dressed in a jersey with the name and logo of that betting shop. This is what he wrote. The outrage of the church was predictable. He's also an atheist. He's got a lot of stuff to say about God and Christians. He writes, uh, he says, The Anglican Archbishop of Melbourne led the way. He and many other religious people were so highly offended they wanted it stopped. But is the fact that the religious folk are offended enough? Personally, I've been offended uh, for years by various religious types proselytising in the public domain that those with my belief system, and here it is, a resolute refusal to believe transparent nonsense on no evidence, that's him, will and should burn in hell for all eternity because of it. But those religious types don't seem to particularly care about my being offended, so why should I care about theirs? I don't know if you, how do you feel as I read that? I think sometimes as a Christian I feel like a victim when I read things like this. I watch Q&A on a Monday night and they are going to town on my worldview, or worse yet, they're going to town on a Christian brother or sister. Or, you know, among my friends, someone's been reading Hitchens or Dawkins and they're only too happy to tell me that I believe in a fairy tale. Or in the paper, uh, like in this example, Christians and their beliefs are outdated and Christians are stupid. And then in the world, um, there's different things happening, political instability, changes in government, like you look at the Arab Spring and that kind of thing. Christians are, are under pressure. The church is being persecuted. I think at times we can feel like victims in a chaotic world that's, that's kind of out of control. And we ask questions like, where's God? Has he abandoned us? Is he there? How long is he going to let this go on? And, and so what we can do is actually we fixate about the end of the world. And we think, come Lord Jesus, come, why don't you come and save us from this chaos? Then when you come, we won't be victims. And that has actually led a bunch of people to look in Daniel 8 and come up with some, some strange readings. And so they take some of the numbers in there, 2,300 was one of them. Someone, a guy called William Miller, calculated that 1843 would be the return of Christ based on those numbers. He was wrong. And, uh, <laughs> but he recalculated he got 1844, and uh, he was wrong. And then he said to his uh, followers, oh, actually, what happened? It was invisible. Christ did come back, but it happened up in heaven, blah, blah, blah. Um, actually, a well-known denomination came out of that, the, um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
came out of that. But we, we can fixate on the end because we're just hoping for God to come back and rescue us from the chaos. And I want to say this morning that even though the initial reading of chapter 8 looks like God is giving Daniel a vision of the end, he's not. God is giving Daniel a vision of the now, of a couple of hundred years, things that would soon be happening in the world of his day. And so from our viewpoint, we're not reading this as a description about what's going to happen sometime in our future. This is a description of something that's already happened in the history of the world over the next few hundred years of Daniel's life. And you might ask, Dave, if this is just a piece of history, why is it in the Bible? What good is it for me? And they're good questions. And here's the answer. And I hope as we dive in, we'll find this. It's because I want to show you this morning that it's not just pie in the sky when we die. It's not just our hope for for the end, that God will come and kind of fix the world that's falling out of control. We have, you like this, steak on the plate while we wait. God is in control right now. And I hope to show you from Daniel 8 that that is true. And that's the message for us. That is the message for us. So let me pray and then we'll look at the details. And the point is, I hope you'll go away. You won't be saying, stop the world, I'm getting off. You'll say, God, I trust you because you're in control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has completed your plan for all of us. We thank you for that from eternity, he was to be Lord of Lords and King of Kings and that those that you have called to be his from eternity were chosen. We are all part of your plan and you are in control of your plan at all times. And we pray this morning that we'll be comforted as we consider these things that those of us who feel battered and bent in the chaos, victims in a, in a wild world, will, um, will, will stand firm and be re-established in, in the hope that we have in Jesus this morning. Amen. Okay, Daniel chapter 8. I don't know if you're someone who remembers your dreams. I'm not. Crystal thinks I've got a zinc deficiency, which means I forget my dreams, or I've got the Mo factor or something. But very occasionally, a dream will stick in my mind being particularly memorable and I think that Daniel's dreams were a bit like that. So last week we looked at Daniel chapter 7, that's the dream that Daniel had in the first year of King Belshazzar. In chapter 8 we're looking at a dream Daniel had in the third year of King Belshazzar. So that's, that's, that's two years between dreams and so he probably doesn't dream like this very often which is just as well because the thing shakes him up. And while the dream in chapter 7, do you remember last week, it was all mutated, scary, hybrid, weirdo beasts. And, and it's more kind of, it was more about general principles and, um, rather than specific kingdoms. This dream is more like a political cartoon. It's got normal animals. And we're told exactly who it's about. It is scary, but when you think of it like a political cartoon, it's not so strange. So here's a cartoon where our animals represent countries. Russia is a bear and China is a panda. The idea is that animals share the same characteristics with the kingdom. It communicates something about the kingdom by representing it as an animal. And so that's what we've got here in Daniel chapter 8. And just to make it easier, just like some of those cartoons have labels on them, in the passage we've got labels. And so we get some help from the angel Gabriel. So from verse 17 onwards, he explains everything that this dream is about. We'll start at the top. In verse 2, in Daniel's dream, he's in the city of Susa. Now that's the capital of Persia. It's not significant at the moment. 
But in the third year of Belshazzar, word is that Persia is a kingdom on the rise. It's, the, it's a newly established kind of twin state, media and Persia. They are going to be a big player. And that's where Daniel goes in his dream. It's a bit like taking an indigenous man from Broken Hill, something like that, to the shores from the 16th century to the shores of Lake Burley Griffin, okay, in the 21st century. Daniel's transported to the centre of power for this new kingdom. And um, it's going to be 12 years before these guys even turn up on the scene, before the writing on the wall that we heard about a couple of weeks ago. But he goes to the very capital. And this is where Nehemiah and Esther are going to live, actually the capital of Persia. And he sees a ram with two horns. One is longer than the other and it charges from the west and then it goes north and then it goes south. I don't know my compass, but he charges around and no animal could stand against him. None could rescue from his power and he did as he pleased and he became great. And then down in verse 20, Gabriel says, well, this ram represents this kingdom. This is Media and Persia. That's not hard to guess because of where it starts right from the capital. It's not great at the moment, but before long this this kingdom is going to take the world by storm. No one stands in its way, not even Babylon. And Babylon's nowhere to be seen actually in the dream. But there's more. Jump to to verse 5, forward further in time. It's a goat. And the goat has one prominent horn and it races across from the west and it doesn't even touch the ground, and it crashes into the ram, and it shatters its horns, and the ram is powerless to stop, and there's no one to help. Verse 21. Gabriel tells uh, us that it stands for Greece. And so the mighty kingdom of the Medes and the Persians is crushed by Greece. Babylon, Medes and Persia, Greece. And history tells us that that's just how it worked out. The large horn was Alexander the Great, king of Greece, who raced across the world. He conquered everything in his path. In 10 years, he conquered everything between Greece and India. But then at 33, he dies. He has a drunken night and uh, he gets the chills and he dies. And you notice the phrase that um, at the height of his power, that happens. And the kingdom gets split four ways among his generals at the height of his power. So there he is, pride, arrogance, racing across the world. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you don't stumble often in your weak areas. You stumble in the areas that you think you're strong in. So you think about Peter. Peter was bold, he was always action. But how did he uh, deny Jesus on the night before Jesus died? Well, boldness was meant to be his strongest characteristic, but that's what failed him. I think sometimes we, um, we lean on the Lord for help in our weak areas, but... Our strong areas, we think, no, no, I've got it, I've got it. And uh, it's, it's those areas that we think we don't have a problem in that can jump up and bite us. And we'll see that that happens to another character in this dream, later in the dream. Anyway, that's the, that's the horn broken off in verse 8. The dream continues. In its place, four other horns grow up towards the four winds of heaven. So what happens is, Alexander dies so young that he doesn't have an heir And on his deathbed, the kingdom split four ways and eventually four successors assume control over the kingdom. So there's a guy called Cassander who rules Macedonia. There's a horn. There's a guy called Cassander who rules Macedonia. Lysimachus gets Asia Minor. Ptolemy gets Egypt. And Seleucus gets Syria. And that Syria kingdom includes 
Israel. And these king, they all, they all reign, these four kingdoms, up until the Romans come through just before Jesus in 180 BC. But then in verse 9, Daniel's attention is drawn away by something else. Out of one of them came another horn. It started small, but grew in power to the south, to the east, and toward the beautiful land. The beautiful land is Israel. And so what this little horn does next is very important to Daniel. He's got a vested interest. The horn starts small, but its impact on Israel is huge. It grew up until it reached the host of heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up as, a great, as great as the high priest of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Now this dream describes dark, dark days in Israel's history. So what happens is 400 years after Daniel, one of the ancestors of Seleucus, a guy called uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, rises to power and he does it on the back of imprisonments, dirty deals, assassination, deceit. He even kills his own little, like, little baby brother. His nickname Epiphanes means God made manifest. So the guy's got a healthy ego and he's brutal in the way he treats the Jews. He plunders the temple, he outlaws circumcision, he outlaws the temple sacrifices, he outlaws the Bible, he murders Jews inside the temple. He puts a huge statue of, Je- of um, Zeus, the Greek god, and says, all right, everyone's got to worship Zeus. And, um, and then what he did on the altar, he sacrificed a pig. If you know anything about the Jewish laws, that was, he was just really trying to um, hurt them at that point. What's the point? Because that's pretty much the dream. These are dark days in the pages of Israel's history. And I'm sure Daniel didn't want to dream them. But what's the point? They're all described 400 years before the event, a long time after Daniel. Why did God reveal it to him? Well, number one, to teach Daniel that God's word will be vindicated. Yeah, today, liberals and sceptics, they reject the possibility of predictive prophecy. So that, what people say is someone pretending to be Daniel wrote all of this down much later. So they wrote it after all of these things had happened, but as if Daniel had predicted it. Do you know why they do that? They do it because they believe that no human can know in advance what's going to happen. And they're right. No human can, but God can. God knows. And why does he know? Is it because he's like a prophet that he can kind of see into the future? Actually, it's not that. It's not that. It's not, be- it's not that he can see the future. It's because he has known from eternity what he has always planned to do in the future. He has always planned to do this in the future. This is um, Josephus, ancient Jewish historian. He, he actually writes about the time when Alexander came to Jerusalem. Did you know that Alexander the Great had a dream while he was still in Greece that he would meet a high priest in one of the Middle Eastern countries, he didn't even know where, and that the high priest would show him a scroll. And Josephus tells us what happened next. He mentions the book of Daniel and uh, he notes that as Alexander comes into the land of Judea, one of the priests showed him the book of Daniel. 
And when the book of Daniel was showed him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that he himself was the person intended. Do you, know? you like that? That's Alexander the Great going, yeah, this is me. hey, this is me, how cool is this? In the Bible. And so he comes to Jerusalem, because he's had that dream already in Greece, Alexander the Great kind of thinks, he, he actually thinks, well, this is probably why I'm such a success, right? Because it's been prophesied. He's got a healthy ego too. And uh, he treats the high priest magnificently, Josephus tells us, and he offers some sacrifices and he lets the Jews kind of um, have, have a, a good time enjoying the laws of their forefathers while he's in charge. And Josephus says this, And indeed, it so came to pass that our nation suffered these things under Antiochus Epiphanes, according to Daniel's vision, and what he wrote many years before they came to pass. Does that thrill you? That should thrill us. It should thrill us. God is the one who places kings on thrones and replaces them with other kings. He does what he's announced in his word. That's that's amazing. It's powerful confirmation of the truthfulness of his word. You've got to just think through all the specifics that match perfectly what history records over those centuries. The sudden end to Babylon the powerful rise of Persia, the lightning speed of Alexander, the four generals, the horrible things that Epiphanes would do, it all came about exactly as God said it would. And I want to say this, beyond that, if this part of the Bible is true, then what else is true? Now, this is our comfort. This is our comfort. God will not be ignored forever. God will not overlook sin forever. God will not forsake those who trust in Jesus forever you can trust what God has written to you in the Bible but more than that I want to take it one step further God's plan will be completed the vision that God gave Daniel it gave comfort to those Jewish exiles not that not that it would be one day pie in the sky when they die that God's that that God will sometime Uh, come and save them sometime in the future it gave them comfort that God's plan that was in action right now was being completed now most people today have um, what I think amounts to like a Darwinian evolutionary view of history so if you apply that to biology right the Darwinian evolutionary view of biology um, where molecules are kind of meaningless human existence are meaningless. People do that to history, the same principles to historical record over the centuries. So they think that history is just basically self-directed, it's unplanned, it's uncaused, there's no external being or force. Therefore, history is meaningless, just as biologists believe human life is meaningless. It's merely the account of a random sequence of unplanned, undirected events. But in biology, that's, that's an absurd idea. The intelligent design folk tell us about the interconnectedness of systems in the body from the ear to the eye, the reproductive system, the digestive system. And it's absurd in history too. I just want you to think about this one period of time. The succession of empires in the Middle East in those times from one to the other, do you know what happened? It prepared the way for for who? For Jesus. It was quite incredible the sort of world that Jesus was born into, it was ripe for the gospel to to spread across it. And God had that planned because God was behind it. You think of those enormous forces, physical, psychological, 
that are involved in the transition of these type of empires and things, it seems like you can be overwhelmed by that kind of power. That, 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 that we can be left feeling helpless. Like, like I, I sort of helped you see at the beginning, sometimes we feel like we're in a chaotic world. And even now there's things happening on the world stage. So there was the Arab Spring recently. There's still things happening in the Middle East. Or, you know, we look at China or North Korea, what's going to happen there in the next five to ten years? But here's the point. Whether it's Nebuchadnezzar, whether it's Belshazzar, whether it's Epiphanes, whether it's Alexander the Great, whether it's someone in North Korea in 2014... These dictators are tools in God's hand to accomplish his purposes for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. All of this has already been planned by our sovereign God. And so as intimidating as sometimes the future seems beforehand, we can actually be at ease. Because you know who's the captain of the ship? God is at the wheel. God has got the charts. God wrote the charts and God is steering the ship of his creation. Listen to these reassuring words from Isaiah. The Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so will it be. And as I have purposed, so will it happen. And he talks about the Assyrians there. But then he says, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over the nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed. Who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? You know, that's the Old Testament equivalent of something that is true for you in the New Testament. This is Philippians 1, where Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion the day of Christ. That's your story. And this is your God who has begun a good work in you if you are one of his. He is at the wheel. He has got the charts. He wrote the charts. And he is steering the ship of your salvation. God has a plan. It's fixed. It's unchangeable. It's a plan to rid his creation of all sin and bring his people home. So this is what Jesus promised in John 6. And this is the the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he's given me. Jesus says, I'm not going to lose you if you've been given to me by God the Father. But I'll raise you up on the last day, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. And nowhere do you see this more clearly than in the great story of redemption from the garden in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, the tree in the middle, the tree of life, to the tree that you find in the courts of God at the end in Revelation. The beautiful story of what God's doing in salvation. R.C. Sproul, who's a theologian, says, there are no free molecules in the universe. Nothing is an accident. Nothing's by fortune. Nothing's by luck. Far from random, God orders everything in a way that, that makes his plan work. And his plan's better than our plan. It's better than any plan we could possibly make for ourselves. And so as hard as it can be sometimes, and it can be hard, and as much pain as we feel, because God is the Lord of history, 
because he's the God of time and because he orders all things in such a way that he receives the glory and, and we receive salvation, we can trust him. This is God's story about you and I. This is us that God is speaking to this morning. God's purpose is to save a people for himself and he wants his people to be confident, secure in the knowledge that he will complete his plan. Number three, God's enemies will be destroyed. Back up in the dream, a holy one asks, How long is all this going to go on for? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the host trampled underfoot? And the answer is given in verse 14. 2,300 evenings and mornings. Exactly. God is counting every missed sacrifice. He's ticking them off. He knows. He sees it all. Every missed prayer at the temple. It's meaningful to God. And in his perfect timing, he'll bring it to an end and he'll restore the sanctuary. So jump down again to Gabriel's explanation, verse 25. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed and it's not going to be by human power. Despite the unspeakable evil that was going to happen to the Jews, God still has it all under control, which is pretty much the same point that all the dreams have been making through Daniel. I'm the one who raises up kings and kingdoms and I'm the one who brings them down and every king and kingdom has a used-by date. And who stamps the packet? I do, says God. Finally, God's people will be delivered. There will be a day when Jesus returns to bring history to an end. So it is true, there is pie in the sky when we die. But I hope you've seen on the way that there is steak on the plate while we wait as we entrust ourselves to this God who is in control. But both are true. This age is going to transition to the age to come. And uh, as I said before, one of the, one of the, the things that we jump to because... I think through our lack of faith and our lack of trust, we just think, oh, come God, come and help us. That's not a wrong thing, but that's not the whole thing. But all through history, as I said, people have, um, people have tried to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. Jesus said himself, no one knows the day or the hour. So I mentioned William Miller doing that in 1843 and 1844. More recently, um, Tim LaHaye did it with the Left Behind book series. You know about that? And then there was a fellow called Harold Camping. These are just ones that come to my mind, who predicted the end in 1994 and then in 2011, because I was here and we talked about it at Youth Group. Since World War II, someone told me there have been 200 predictions of the return of Jesus, just, I guess, so in the last 50 years. And I mention these things because a lot of these prophecies are based out of this chapter and the next one in Daniel. But I want to ask... Why did God give Daniel this prophecy? Because that, it's actually not true of Daniel. That's, that's not why this ch- chapter was given. It was written to comfort us in the middle of our suffering, to assure us that God is in control despite present appearances. Because I want to suggest there's a pattern to the world. 
So again and again, kingdoms look, they look permanent and they look indestructible. Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome, China. They fight against God and his people. But because of the pattern, we shouldn't be surprised or disappointed when it happens because the reality is they'll always come to an end. So Antiochus, who set up the rebellion that causes desolation, was just part of the pattern. I'll tell you what I mean, because a couple of hundred years later you get to Jesus and he looks ahead to a future time for him in Matthew 24 and he sees the pattern repeating and he actually he borrows the language of Daniel when he speaks. He says this, So, when you are standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoke of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What Jesus is doing, he's using the language of a proud and evil leader from Daniel to speak about another future king. It's the same pattern. And after Jesus, one came that was like Antiochus and maybe that was the Roman Empire Caligula in the first century and he orders a statue of Zeus to be set up in the Jerusalem temple. It's a pattern of the world. Leaders are proud and powerful. They arrogantly set themselves up against God. They make God's people suffer and it's part of the pattern, but God brings them down. But there's another part to the pattern and there's a final lesson to learn and it's the lesson that does, it does bring the greatest hope. It's the one that Daniel received too. The greatest comfort in all of this when God's people suffer at the hand of powerful rulers is that someone else has the power. Daniel's already met him in his last dream in chapter 7. The son of man who's establishing his kingdom forever. And so if you go back to Matthew's gospel, um, you can read about Jesus looking forward to that event. So we heard him speaking about the suffering to come when you're standing in the holy place and you see the abomination that causes desolation spoke of through the prophet Daniel, you flee. Then Jesus says this, At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all, all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect. This is a picture of the completion of the plan. There are dark days ahead, there's no doubt but Jesus will put an end to all of them when he comes with glory and power and he'll gather everyone who belongs to him to him, everyone who's suffered under these present evil kingdoms from every age and every place. And it's, it's wonderful hope. It's a wonderful hope to look forward to, especially if you're suffering or you are feeling buffeted and rocked at the moment in life. And it strengthens our resolve to stick it out, to fix our eyes on the goal. But it's not just then. It's starting now. God's taking us there now. And so whether our persecution is life-threatening, like might be happening to our brothers and sisters in North Korea, or it's, it's stuff like um, just insults, mockery, your family, your friends, your workmates, rolling their eyes or sniggering, telling you you believe in a spaghetti monster, you tell us to keep our stupid beliefs to ourselves, 
the pattern tells us we're not alone and we're not unique. And even though for Daniel, the vision is appalling. He's made sick by it. After a little while, he gets up and he goes back to work. He processes it. He works prayerfully through it. And he goes about the king's business. We have a much greater king that we are to be getting on with. His business. There are dark days ahead, there's no doubt, but we're not to get depressed. We're not to be paralysed with indecision. We're not to withdraw into a holy huddle. We've got to get out into the world that belongs to the King of Kings and declare that Jesus has won the victory and that he's bringing it to bear right now. Not at the end, but right now. It's the advice that Peter gave to the persecuted Christian reading his letter. Let me finish by sharing it with you. Brothers and sisters, cast all your anxiety onto him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. We're to be about the king's business. We're to live out the truth. We're not alone and we're not unique. We're part of the pattern. But it's a pattern that God is controlling It's a pattern that God will one day bring to an end when his son, the heavenly son of man, is revealed to everyone in power and glory. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the comfort that we have in this passage this morning. We thank you that hearing that you're in control, that that your plan is for those who belong to you to, to bring them to Jesus uh, just means that we can uh, let go of our anxieties we can we can give our burdens to you and so Lord we thank you for Jesus again this morning and may we comfort each other with these words all the more Amen Amen